each of us are going to experience today, what message perhaps might be received, what thoughts might be channeled through today's reading of the autobiography of a yogi. We are on chapter 39, Therese Neumann, the Catholic Stigmatist. And thus far, we are at the point where Paramahansa Yogananda and his little group um, remember that they're traveling from the US and they're trying to return back to India because Swami Sri Yukteswarji, the guru of Paramahansa Yogananda, has called him and he says, I'm ready to leave my body, come to India, let's, you know, at least physically meet once. And so on his way to India, Yogananda Ji takes the opportunity to come take a nice long stroll and he's traveling through Europe. He was in England in the last chapter and now he's in Germany and he's making this specific stop because he wants to meet this well-known saint or actually a slightly obscure but he knew saint that is said to never eat anything and also every week she undergoes and experiences what is called the passion of Christ. That experience of Christ from the moment he was arrested till when he leaves his body and so it it lasts almost two days in its entirety. So Yoganandaji has just met her and he's asking her these questions and we left it right here where um, Yoganandaji says, certainly you could not have lived. Now, I wanted to mention that she eats one thing every day and that is a consecrated uh, wafer that if you're aware or have any concept of the mass in the Catholic Church is that the priest gives each the congregation member one of these wafers which represent the body of Christ. It comes from the Last Supper where Christ tore open bread and handed it out to each of his disciples and he said to them, this is my body, you know, eat of my body as a representation that you need to accept me, to receive me completely in every form, both in the physical and of course in the consciousness. So that wafer is an affirmation for most Catholics that I continue, I receive Christ every day I come and I receive him. So that's the only thing that she eats, that consecrated wafer. It's very thin, it's very tiny. Of course, it has no nutritional value at all. So Yoganandaji asks her, certainly you could not have lived on that for 12 whole years. So it's been 12 years and she's eaten absolutely nothing. And she says, I live by God's light. How simple her reply, how Einsteinian. If you remember the chapter of the Law of Miracles, how Yoganandaji explains based on Einstein's E equals MC square, how Einstein himself was saying, everything in this universe is just light, is just pure manifestation of light. And then that light, because of the varying degrees of its frequencies, becomes grosser and gives the impression of a matter-based reality. So she's like, I live by God's light, by nothing else. I don't, I don't live by that wafer. That wafer is just a kind of uh, outward symbol, almost of faith that might be available also to others, perhaps, who don't have the ability to stay completely off of food. I see you realize, Yoganandaji says, that energy flows to your body from the ether, sun and air. Now this is of course a very yogic teaching 
you know, in our tradition, of course, we realize that we, the sun always represents the source of all life and prana. And so you've got a lot of great saints who eat nothing and they, you know, draw directly from the sun. They draw the prana directly from the air around them. But this is, of course, not a Catholic teaching at all. It's not a Christian understanding over there. The same concept would be called God's grace or, you know, oh, because Jesus wills it, therefore. So Yogananda is kind of throwing her a little curveball to see how she'd react to this statement. Oh, you live by the ether, you live by the air, and you live by the sun. A swift smile broke over her face. I am so happy to know you understand how I live. So that's a very beautiful thing for her to acknowledge because otherwise, you know, it's, it's a very standard understanding that, oh, I don't quite know how it's working. It must just be working because God wants this to happen. But she, of course, knowing she could probably feel how her body is drawing prana, she could feel the life force around her sustaining her. And after all this time to meet another soul who could understand exactly what she's going through, I'm sure it was a thrilling experience. It feels good when we meet somebody who has something in common with us, like, ah, finally, oh, you like the movies I like, oh, you like the music I like, oh, you meditate and I meditate too. Isn't it always a joyful experience to bump into somebody who has something that you share in common? And, and one, these, yeah, indeed. And these saints yeah. don't find too many such people, you know. They're mostly finding the ignorant bunch like us that are just hoping that they'll fix problems for us, you know, that they'll just, oh, I'm here, can you do this, can you heal this, can you, you know, speak to God on my behalf, while of course they're hoping that we are inspired by their presence to say, I want to do that as well. I also want to live the way you live. I also want to be supported by the sun and the air and the ether. But how few of us want to rise to that challenge. I mean, I don't think any of us, even those of us who say we want to rise to that challenge, when we actually start that challenge, we start thinking, Guruji, could you just hasten the process? Could you just fix this so that then perhaps I will attempt? And that's what the idea behind having a saint in your life that you can inspire and aspire towards. Your sacred life is a daily demonstration of the truth uttered by Christ. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. Now, this is a very central teaching in our tradition, especially when Paramahansa Yogananda Ji created what all Kriya Yogis would know to be the energization exercises. You know, it's one of those uh, techniques that it takes a while to get people interested in because, you know, it's this physical exercise and it requires a lot of willpower on our part. But the basic idea behind this exercise is it's through the medulla oblongata right here at where the spinal column meets the brain at the brain stem is where Yoganandaji said we draw cosmic energy in from, from the universe. So if we pay attention to this center, and if we consciously try to feel that the center is opening, we'd be able to, like Teres Nueman, directly start drawing life force into it. It reminds me of the movie Matrix. I don't know if you've ever seen it. You know, that's where they're plugged in, right here. They're plugged into the Matrix from this center. And this is where they're being fed and nourished by. Not through the mouth, not through the stomach, but through the medulla oblongata. 
which is the first cell that is formed when the sperm and the ovum unite. So it's where the soul spark first begins to grow and manifest into a physical form. So the prana starts to enter into that cell and begins to grow that cell little by little eventually to create our entire body. So these set of exercises are designed for us to start tuning into the center more and through our will start to draw that prana. And so this Yogananda said is the mouth of God, the mouth of man and the mouth of God. And they're just perfectly opposite to one another, just behind, in fact, our physical mouth. So man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word. And here the word represents vibration that proceedeth from the mouth of God. So it'll be a wonderful experience, even if you don't practice the energization exercises. During the day, if you start feeling tired or something, just place your hand there, massage that center, close your eyes, just feel, all right, I'm going to draw prana in directly into my body and see if perhaps you might tap into that source on your own. Anything you want to add? I'm going on and on. Again, she showed joy at my explanation. It is indeed so, she says. One of the reasons I am here on earth today is to prove that man can live by God's invisible light and not by food only. So that's a very particular mission we can say given to Therese Nueman to demonstrate, as we always say, to raise the bar high enough for each of us to see. Not that she's special. Oh, isn't it lovely? Oh, there must be some special grace upon her, which I'm sure there is. But that she can truly demonstrate. You know, sometimes we're so... Mm, hypnotized by science and biology and we we say everybody believes this oh it can be demonstrated oh it's demonstrated that when you put food in it breaks down in this particular way and these nutrients are released and those are the nutrients that keep us alive and of course that's happening in 99.9 percent but then you've got this one person who's demonstrating something completely different but her will disregard them, will say, no, that's not possible. This is more appropriate because the mass hypnosis of everybody is going through this process. This must be true and that must be an anomaly. But in this particular case, for those, as Christ said, for those who have eyes to see, let them see. So each of us look to them and say, wow, wouldn't that be lovely if I could do that as well? Can you teach others how to live without food? This is Yogananda's question to her. She appeared a, appeared a trifle shocked. I cannot do that. God does not wish it. So the idea here is not to teach us how to live without food. The idea here is to teach us how to love God enough that if it ever comes to the point where we don't need that sustenance, then we won't need it anymore. I, life, I love the fact when she replies here, God does not wish that for me. Mm. I mean, and you can really get a glimpse of all these saints. They have no agenda on their own. They are not interested in what they can do, how they can share what God is giving them, but quite the opposite. They just want to be used in the way God wants for them. So many of us have so many agendas. I want to do this. I don't feel inspired to do that. I feel I should be doing this. Rather than giving space to God and 
let him use us in the way he wish. And if his wish for us is not to do that right now, if that's his wish, and if we are really sincerely wanting to do his will, perhaps could be a good training for us to just allow that process to happen and not constantly imposing what we think we should do. If those things don't come to us, if the magnetism doesn't come to us to manifest that particular wish or desire of our own, I think it's, it's important for us just to pause and, and, and ask God himself, is this your wish? If it's not, I do not want it. I'm not going to go against something that you have not planned for me. And for all of us who are sincerely trying to channel a specific vibration of the divine uh, at work, at home, uh, at, at work, it's very, very important to just make sure that our wishes and God wishes are in perfect alignment for that grace to manifest in our lives. But, but how beautiful. She, just, she doesn't have any agenda on her own. Whatever God wants me, I just, and if he only wants my body, this is so beautiful. If he only wants my body, my body to, to through pain, show something to others or uplift others or purify others, let my body be of that use. I mean, it's just so, so powerful how saints sometimes it just through very yeah. unique expressions. Very interesting. Yeah. And then that's it. And it's not like she's, you know, on Instagram <laughs> showing everyone, look, I'm not going, you know. She's in some tiny corner in the 1930s, 40s of Germany. Nobody's heard about this village ever. And that's it. And that's the very particular. She's not like, well, since I do have so much to offer, perhaps I, I should move to Munich. You know, there'll be so many more people in Munich. Because here I am and only 10, 15 people are around me. What's the big deal? But that's just it. I'm reminded, in fact, and perhaps we've shared this before, of um, Mother Teresa also of Calcutta when somebody asked her about the work that she did. And of course, in her particular case, she had a very large work. And she was uplifting all these people and helping, uh, you know, a la layer of society often discarded and not paid much, att much attention to. And so, of course, she received so much world attention in this process. Wow, look at this lady. She's doing such an amazing thing to uplift society. But when somebody asked her, why do you do what you do? You know, the natural, if somebody were to ask me, oh, why are you helping this person? Well, you know, they really need help. Nobody else is helping them. It seems like uh, they too are, you know, loved by God, therefore. And her answer was very simple, because this is what Christ has asked me to do. The day he asked me to do something else, I'll just leave all of this behind and I'll do that. So if Christ were to suddenly tell Mother Teresa, you know, now go to Germany into a tiny village and just live there and just meet three people a day. And then that's what they would do. And that's the beauty, and that's where very beautifully it is. There is no agenda at all. As my gaze fell on her strong, graceful hands, Therese showed me a little square, freshly healed wound on each of her palms. So these are the signs of the stigmata. 
On the back of each hand, she pointed out a smaller crescent-shaped wound, freshly healed as well. Each wound went straight through the hand. The sight brought to my mind distinct recollection of the large square iron nails with crescent-tipped ends still used in the Orient, but which I do not recall having seen in the West. The saint told me something of her weekly trances. As a helpless onlooker, I observe the whole passion of Christ. So she gets transported to that moment where Christ, uh, as we said, is crucified, is taken, he's carrying his cross, he's taken through the streets of Jerusalem, goes up to, um, what's the name of the hill? Calvary? Is that what it's called? Yeah, I guess so. That hill, you know, and then he's nailed to the cross. And so this, imagine this, she lives this experience every week, week after week. And so not only is she seeing Christ go through this whole process, she then takes on the exact same wounds and suffering. So if he gets hurt, she gets hurt. If he's bleeding, she's bleeding, both from the crown of thorns, from her hands, from her feet, and from just under her you know, rib cage where that spear is thrust into Christ's body. Each week from Thursday midnight until Friday afternoon at one o'clock, her wounds open and bleed. She loses 10 pounds of her ordinary 121 pound weight. Suffering intensely in her sympathetic love, Therese yet looks forward joyously to these weekly visions of her Lord. I realized at once that her strange life is intended by God to reassure all Christians of the historical authenticity of Jesus's life and crucifixion as recorded in the New Testament and to dramatically display the ever-living bond between the Galilean master and his devotees. Now the first part of course is sweet, you know, okay, everybody's assured the fact that, okay, Christ did live, this is how in fact he died. You know, sometimes you hear these stories and you're not quite sure, <laughs> oh, well, did it really happen? Did it not? How much of it is fiction? How much of it has been, you know, exaggerated? We love to exaggerate. If something happens to me and I have to share it with Narayani, I'm going to exaggerate a little bit. I just had this amazing, amazing meditation. It was, a, it was an all right meditation. I just met this guy and he was just so impressed by me. So we, we love to exaggerate. So you can imagine over 2000 years, there might have been a fair amount of exaggeration in all our scriptures and all stories that we share. But here's a nice thing to know that, all right, you know, this did happen. Such a life was indeed lived. But more importantly than that is this next line, and to display the ever-living bond between the master and his devotee. And that's most important, and especially from our perspective, you know, our entire path is a guru-disciple path. And unlike, you know, the more modern ones, our guru is not in the body anymore. You know, it's not, he's not somebody we've seen, he's not somebody we kind of go up to and say, you know, I'm having this trouble, that trouble, what do you think? Our bond with him has to be entirely from a state of consciousness, of a vibration, of a presence. And just to see that 2000 years down, Christ's presence still touches those that are in complete attunement with him. It shows you how eternal that bond of guru-disciple is. 
that it has nothing to do with the body, nothing to do with a lifetime, nothing to do with one experience I had with that person in that particular life. That once you're a disciple, you're a disciple for all eternity. If you so choose to hold on to that attunement. And that's a very, you know, reassuring thing for each of us. And the same is true for Mirabai with Krishna. The same is true with any devotee of Hanuman. You don't have to have lived with them. You know, you can just tune into them now. And then they are as present to you. And in fact, more present to you than all the people in your life put together. I feel from this chapter, I mean, it has so many amazing paragraphs, but, but I feel this is one of the most important ones because in this paragraph, Yogananda is reassuring that the life of Christ was real. And all that he went through was actual reality they, they were facts this is no one has come up with that no one has invented that life this is indeed how and what it happened and he says here very clearly the life of teresa newman is to reassure all christians of the historical authenticity of jesus life and crucifixion i mean so if anyone ever had any doubt uh, forget about it. This is really how it happened. Some of us went two years ago to a pilgrimage uh, to the Holy Land. So I think it was 40 of us Indians. Mm. And we you were not Indian. Yeah, I feel myself <laughs> like an Indian soul. And we went through all the pilgrimage spots where, where Christ and Jesus walked and where he was crucified and where his disciples were there with him. I mean, I remember many of us feeling those events so vividly. I mean, we had tears in our eyes just by feeling that presence so vividly. And you can really mm, meditate on the life of Christ and, and, and ask in a sense, for those experiences and how the disciples felt and how Jesus felt. And he can really give you taste, a taste, a glimpse of it. But more than anything else, I feel this paragraph is like um, he's, he's almost reassuring to every Christian every, in every tradition, the life of Christ was real and his crucifixion was real and his life i mean everything was like um, authentic and i think it's very powerful for yogananda to write it in such a way i'm going to skip a few paragraphs and move forward to where yogananda talks about a conversation he has with Therese neumann's brothers from a conversation the next day with two of Therese's brothers very kind and amiable, we learn that the saint sleeps only one or two hours at night. In spite of the many wounds in her body, she is active and full of energy. I just, when I read this, it suddenly struck me that, you know, if she's having these wounds every week, there's hardly any time for them to heal. <laughs> they're just starting to heal again, they're bleeding, they're just starting to heal. I mean, it must be quite a, yeah. you know, and it's not like because she's a saint, 
oh, this doesn't touch me, I'm not being affected by it at all. She's in pain, she's experiencing actual pain and suffering because that's the tapasya she's running through her body for the devotees who come to see her. I mean, someone has to work karma out. So either we work the karma out or the saints work it out on our behalf. But that karma is real and it has to go through them. They can't just brush it off and say, since I'm one with the infinite, so she loves birds. I love when he puts these little... <laughs> she loves birds, looks after an aquarium of fish and works often in her garden. Sometimes when you think of, huh, I wonder what saints do in their free time. You know, it's like, they must be meditating all the time or they must be in some, you know, Trans. astral world of his concentration. No, they like to garden <laughs> and they like to take care of their fish and, and they birds. like to watch birds. I mean, it's just the naturalness of their presence is also, in fact, as much a teaching as the amazing miracles that they perform. Because in our minds, you know, we're just everything's so warped, we think, if my consciousness is one way, then I ought to be, or oh, my voice needs to change, and my look needs to change, and I have to act a certain way, and... But they're the most natural people. Aww. All right, everybody, I'm going to go and feed my fish. <laughs> Excuse me. <laughs> oh, I just got these wounds, but that's all right. I'm going to go and feed my fish now, and now I'm going to go and do some gardening. Because in our, you know, it's just like when people come, either it's like, Saint Matlab, they should be giving darshan and satsang and teaching. Their teaching is that I go and I commune with the plants because that's uh, God's as much there. I commune with the fish, I commune with the birds, and I live a very simple, natural, everyday, relaxed living. There's nothing fancy here, nothing major going on. Yes, then every now and then I have these trances where I'm transported 2000 years back. Well, yeah, that's just a side issue. In, in, in The main part of my life is with my birds and my fish and my garden. Her correspondence is large. Catholic devotees write her for prayers and healing blessings. And many seekers have been cured through her of serious diseases. Her brother Ferdinand, about 23, explained that Therese has the power through prayer of working out on her own body the ailments of others. This is another very yogic reality where the guru or a saint takes on the karma and works it out through his body. So whatever the person is going through, they're able to transfer that karma onto themselves. The saint's abstinence from food dates from a time when she prayed that the throat disease of a young man of her parish, then preparing to enter holy orders, to be transferred to her own throat. So that's an, an interesting thing because in the beginning it says she doesn't eat at all. But here's like the background of that moment is that when she took on that throat disease of one young man who was about to become a priest, he was about to enter uh, the monastic order, he prayed to her and so she took on his throat disease and since then she stopped eating. On Thursday afternoon, our party drove to the home of the bishop, who looked at my flowing locks with some surprise. He readily wrote out the necessary permit. So this is one thing where um, the local bishop, remember, I think we went through this, has to give permission to anybody who is to see and witness, especially the Passion of Christ as Therese is going through it, because they didn't want it to become, as it was becoming, a large circus 
thousands were coming and everybody wanted to kind of out of curiosity see what is this lady going through. So they really limited it up to small groups of 10, 15, 20 people for each of these moments. And so you had to go to the bishop and he would write you a permit to allow you to be in her presence. <clears throat> we arrived Friday morning about 9.30 in Cornersruth, which is the name of her village. I noticed that Therese's little cottage possesses a special glass-roofed section to afford her plenty of light. We were glad to see the doors no longer closed, but wide open in hospitable cheer. There was a line of about 20 visitors armed with their permits. Many had come from great distances to view the mystic trance. Therese had passed my first test at the professor's house by her intuitive knowledge that I wanted to see her for spiritual reasons and not just to satisfy a passing curiosity. My second test was connected with the fact that just before I went upstairs to her room, I put myself into a yogic trance a yogic trance state in order to be one with her in telepathic and telephysic rapport. So Yogananda Ji trying to see is this, you know, because there are instances where people claim that certain things happened to them or, oh, I was here, I saw this. And, um, so Yogananda Ji wanted to see exactly what she experiences. So he put himself into a trance as well and united his consciousness with hers, both telepathically and televisically. So telepathic, of course, is where all her thoughts, what she's experiencing in her mind is also what he experiences. But televisic is what she sees as well, is what he sees. And so, you know, this is going to be a quite an interesting experience. You don't need Netflix anymore. You just, you know, you're like, all right, let's see what's going on in World War II. Let me just connect with that general who was there at the battlefield. I entered her chamber filled with visitors. She was lying in a white robe on the bed. With Mr. Wright following closely behind me, I halted just inside the threshold, awestruck at a strange and most frightful spectacle. Blood flowed thinly and continuously in an inch-wide stream from Teresa's lower eyelids. Her gaze was focused upward at the spiritual eye within the central forehead. The cloth wrapped around her head was drenched in blood from the stigmata wounds of the crown of thorns. The white garment was redly splotched over her heart from the wound in her side at the spot where Christ's body, long ages ago, had suffered the final indignity of the soldier's spear thrust. Teresa's hands were extended in a gesture maternal, pleading. Her face wore an expression both tortured and divine. She appeared thinner, changed in many subtle as well as outward ways. Murmuring words in a foreign tongue, she spoke with slightly quivering lips to persons visible before her inner sight. As I was in attunement with her, I began to see the scenes of her vision. She was watching Jesus as he carried the cross amidst the jeering multitude. Suddenly she lifted her head in cons 
consternation, for the Lord had fallen under the cruel weight. The vision disappeared, and in exhaustion of fervid pity, Therese sank heavily against her pillow. So these visions are coming and going, as you can see. So suddenly she's transported there. She watches Christ. He's walking there, the streets. He's carrying his cross. I mean, it's just, can you, I mean, it's so lovely to really have somebody experience that vision, as Narayani was saying, and just know that those stories, you know, those accounts from the disciples were just so perfect. And when we walk this set, this whole, it's called uh, Via Dolores. Yeah, Via yeah. Doloroso. The Via Doloroso. Mm -hmm. Okay, the 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 path of pain, mm -hmm. no? isn't it? The path of pain, and there are what's called the stations of the cross, which are little moments of what happened here. And they're just, it's like an amazing thing. Christ is carrying his, you know, heavy cross and he's, people are throwing rocks at him and garbage at him and jeering and shouting at him, insulting him. God only knows what. And while he's walking, he looks across and he sees uh, two of his disciples or devotees and he stops there and he has a conversation with them and he tells them a few words of advice that will help them later on in their life. I mean, it's just amazing, isn't it? Here he is just going through the most humiliating, painful experience of his life. And then he just stops and he says, hey, how are you doing? <laughs> you know, remember that problem you had? Yeah, this is how you can solve. All right, chalo, aage badte hai. And so there are all these moments where he falls, where he needs to be, you know, he, somebody gives him little water. And yeah, you can there just... are moments also through that walk that Jesus doesn't even talk. I mean, he just looks to somebody and he transfers so much of the consciousness he was already achieving at that moment that it just, it made disciples after that look. I mean, not necessarily he stopped and just had that chit-chat conversation. He was just transferring. Every moment he felt something was transferred to the person he had in front of him. If he heard something from somebody else and he just looked at that person, the blessing was there. So, so through that walk, there is a lot of purification and a lot of karma he was lifting up through those who were almost um, trying to, to follow him, supporting him, understanding him, and just, you know, being with him through that experience of freedom he was going through. But nobody really knew that that process was leading him to freedom, was a teaching in itself. This is what it means where you are carrying a heavy weight, a heavy karma. This is what it looks like sometimes in your life when you are handling more um, weight, more um, situations and difficulties that you think you can carry, you can handle. But, but do this because if you learn how to carry your own cross, it's going to lead you to freedom. So what Shuja was explaining, like, like that walk, and many of us were able to walk through those you know, stops that he did and those moments where, where, where that transmission of consciousness happened. If, if you really tune into it and you pause and you meditate for a few moments there, you can also feel the blessings of, of Jesus himself transferring you a, a, a bit of his consciousness at that moment. And you can feel that 
this day, I mean, at, at 2022, I mean, if you go to the Holy Land and you just walk through that walk and you stop where he fell, you can feel that, as Shurja was explained before. I mean, his living presence is so alive. So I was just thinking as you were talking, like, Teresa, this is what she was experiencing, not just visually, but the feelings that she went through, that Jesus went through, and perhaps the feelings of many others, because she was able to channel not just the physical pain or the experience or the moment when it happened, but the feeling of it, how she felt, how Jesus felt, how others felt, and all that was accumulated and being a one single experience. So her body was going through that manifestation, that our manifestation, her consciousness also was going through all that process. I mean, all her three bodies, physical, astral, mental, were just going through that, you know, the passion of Christ. I mean, um, must have been amazing for Master to be part of it. I wonder where, which other saint is going through this now. It'd be lovely to go experience something like this. But you can see that it's not been, it's not easy for her. She has a little experience and then she crashes from exhaustion. Her body can't even handle the entire experience that's going through. So she can go into it just in sections. She's with him for a while and then she has to step out of it and it's just way more than she can handle. And imagine what's happening with the people around, what she's drawing from them, what's being transferred into them. You know, whether grace is flowing from her into certain people. In some particular cases, nothing flows. We're just there hoping that I should be healed and this problem should be fixed. And of course, nothing happens to us because, as Narayani was rightly saying, we don't want to carry our crosses, don't we? And we don't want to be humiliated and we don't want people to shout at us and we don't want disharmony and we don't want somebody to think that, you know, we're less than. We think those are bad experiences. We think those are to be avoided. But Christ's example is, oh, even that can be lived and gone through with God's presence and joy. And even what you would consider the absolute most horrible. A friend of ours recently, she went through something quite, I mean, just very, very, very public and just very, very, very um, humiliating. And she was telling us that, you know, for all these years, this has been her greatest fear. The exact thing that was playing out, you know, just the last thing she would have ever wanted in her life would be exactly what did happen. And she said, when finally it did happen, she realized, wow, it wasn't, wasn't that, hard. that bad. Yeah. <laughs> I couldn't, I didn't break. I didn't die. I didn't get destroyed. I wasn't completely just, you know, in a pile of mush somewhere. I could actually walk through it. And because I've been preparing to walk through something like this. And by going through it, I now know who my friends truly are. <laughs> I know those who are with me, those who are not. I know what works, what doesn't. I know how I want to lead my life now, starting from this point. And she says, in fact, I realize this is probably the greatest moment of learning for me that I'll ever have. And if we realize that and if we're able to shift that energy, then like Therese Nueman and like Christ or like any great soul, we achieve that state of 
you know, freedom just one step closer. But if we keep avoiding, keep pushing, keep saying, no, I'd prefer not to, oh, this disharmony, oh, it shouldn't be there in my life, oh, this problem, it shouldn't be there in my life. What's the way to avoid mm -hmm. pain and suffering? I mean, not that we should court it, but when it's there, well, it's there because there's something that needs to happen. Right, moving on, this little experience happens and Yoganandaji actually leaves with his little group right after this. He says, remembering the patiently waiting line of pilgrims, because there are others, of course, Mr. Wright and I silently bade farewell to Therese and left her sacred presence. So, because they were not here for the show, they're not here like, what's going on, what's going on, what's just like, they had that moment, they had the darshan, you know, because for us it's like as much time as I can spend and as much, you know, you know how it is in the, in the temples in India especially. Everybody's in that line, everybody's being pushed forward and you get that half a second before the idol and then they push you ahead and people think if I could just extend that half a second to, you know, 10 seconds, then I would have received greater whatever blessings. It has nothing to do with that. It's just that entire experience of putting out the tapasya, to stand in that line, to wait for the hours, to get there, even if you never actually get there, the grace already is flowing. Just because that's what you want. I want to stand before God. And when that thought enters our mind, then you're already standing before God. And so for the party of Yoganandaji, it was like, all right, we had our darshan. Chalo, let others now continue to experience and receive more. The following day, our little group motored south, thankful that we were not dependent on trains. You remember they carried, brought their car with them from America on the ship all throughout. So they've been driving in their car through um, Europe. We enjoyed every minute of our tour through Germany, Holland, France, and the Swiss Alps. In Italy, we made a special trip to Assisi to honor the Apostle of Humility, St. Francis. This is another place so worth visiting and so worth tuning into. In fact, St. Francis was the first Christian saint who received the stigmata up till that time, and he must have been at least a thousand years after Christ. So for the first thousand years after Christ's passing, nobody had actually had that experience of the stigmata, and St. Francis was the first one to receive that experience. And then since then, actually quite a few saints have had it. The European tour ended in Greece, where we viewed the Athenian temples and saw the prison in which the gentle Socrates had drunk his death potion. One is filled with admiration for the artistry with which the Greeks have everywhere wrought their very fancies in alabaster. You could also see in this whole experience how Yoganandaji's appreciation for beauty, for history, for wanting to experience different cultures. Uh, he wasn't, you know, just because I know what truth is and what reality is, it doesn't mean that the world doesn't actually hold a lot of joy, a lot of love, a lot of amazing things to experience and explore. And so the, there was a lot of fun as well in this thing. It wasn't just some clear agenda of yeah they can get yeah, they can get yeah, they can get they just enjoyed driving through all these different countries these different cultures traditions we took ship we took ship okay over the suddenly mediterranean disembarking at palestine wandering day after day over the holy land 
I was more than ever convinced of the value of pilgrimage. The spirit of Christ is all pervasive in Palestine. Now, of course, he's calling it Palestine here yeah, because the state of Israel had not been created at, this, at that time. Now, all these places that he's talking about, the majority of them, some still fall under the Palestinian territory, but the majority of them are now under the, in the country of Israel. I walked reverently by his side at Bethlehem, Gethsemane, Calvary, the Holy Mount of Olives, and by the River Jordan and the Sea of Galilee. If you're familiar with Christ's life, you know all of these places are very unique and had uh, just beautiful moments that played out. And these are all the places we get to visit when we, in fact, go on pilgrimage. He subtly puts this over here and he doesn't really stress on it, but he says over here, I walked reverently by his side. Later on from Israel, Yoganandaji writes a letter to his most advanced disciple, Rajasi Janakananda, in which he actually kind of expands on this. And he says, Christ, in fact, was with me throughout and he showed me every place. And then he says, most of the places they've gotten correct, a few they don't have correct. <laughs> and imagine that Christ kind of walking hand in hand and just saying, oh, look, there, I was born there. Oh, look, that's where this happened. Oh, that's where I've met my first disciple. I mean, just when these saints commune, God knows what they talk about, but it must be a great joy for them to be able to ex kind of exchange that same state with somebody who can truly understand them. Wouldn't it be lovely if we could be those people that a saint would choose us to exchange their consciousness with because we could truly understand them. We're not there yet, as uh, Yoganandaji said, only a saint can recognize a saint. So we, we're still <laughs> yet to figure that one out. Our little party visited the birth manger, Joseph's carpenter shop, the tomb of Lazarus, the house of Martha and Mary, the hall of the Last Supper, and antiquity unfolded scene by scene. I saw the divine drama that Christ once played for the ages. On to Egypt with its modern Cairo and ancient pyramids, then a boat down to the narrow Red Sea over the vast Arabian Sea, low India. Before we finish this chapter officially, just two days ago, uh, I was reading a little bit about uh, Yogananda's most advanced disciple, Rajasi Yanakananda. There is a book about him that's so inspiring. But I just happened to read a letter that Yogananda wrote to Rajasi Yanakananda, and it was about his trip to Germany mm. and how the experience of being in the presence of this saintly woman really gave him the inspiration and almost like a God-given mission to write about that episode. And in that letter, uh, Yogananda writes about how saintly she was, she was a real saint, you know, in the church and all the things that he experienced. And, and it's just fascinating to see how this trip was destined and was crucial for this very book 
mm. autobiography of a yogi. And in that letter, Yogananda tells Rajasi and Akananda because this disciple was the one who sponsored this trip to India. I mean, Master was able to come to India in 1935 to visit his guru and to visit all these saints because Rajasi and Akananda sponsored the whole trip, all these visits. And at the end of that letter, Yogananda says, like, you know, this trip, it's intended for me to visit saints, to recollect information, and to put it in a book that God is telling me to write that will have the impact to transform people's lives. So um, that letter was exactly during this trip. And if I find it, I probably will be able to share it with some of you. And how, how this meeting with this saintly woman had the purpose and really needed to be part uh, of this book, Autobiography of a Yogi. So I was quite touched and moved by the fact that, you know, this trip when Master came to India was just only with the purpose to recollect information also about Lahiri Mahashaya and other things to be part of this book.